This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me You not gonna do nothing, you are not above me I bet you wish you was me, I know that I know What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Only Friends Podcast. You know what time it is. It's Wednesdays, baby. It's Strat Chat Wednesday. More importantly, it's NHL season. Let's go, Benz! <laughs> Clearly, it's NHL season. Yeah. Oh, it I'm, blew it. I don't want to hear from you. What's the matter? Fucking Homer. What's, I don't want to hear from you. What's Look the prop? You, you sell out. Wait, our, th- our lower thirds are flipped. Who cares? I'm Brian today. Look at him. Oh. He's sold out. Hello. He's Yinzer adjacent now. Well, what's, I didn't really. What's the su- problem? If I'm Brian, I didn't. I'm not sell allowed out. to root for uh, this team right here. You're doing. You're not doing anything wrong. You're me today. He's a bandwagon guy. Why am I you? Because your lower third says Landon Tice. Oh, that's okay. That means you're not. He's not selling out. Right, Landon is. Yeah, he is. You, you Panthers fan. <laughs> that's right. I root for the Penguins. Fucking sell out. No, no, no. You do with the Penguins what I do with the Knights. Like, am I happy they won the Stanley Cup? Sure, good for them. Mm-hmm. But was it the Penguins? No. I'm not that big of a hockey fan anyway, all the way around anyway, so it just doesn't matter. This is what's wrong with you. This is like what right. you do with the Raiders, with the Steelers. Oh, I, I do enjoy going to games, right? So it's like I'm not going to be going to any Penguin games anytime soon. So Play the Knights. Yeah, once a year. So where does your loyalty stand? What do you wear to that game? Here we go, Steelers. <laughs> Yeah, you got to get a, like a half and half jersey. I'm going to wear, I have like a bunch of penguin hoodies I'll wear one tomorrow. Just get like a, like a, something yeah, that's like perky. a mixture of like that, the black, but also like a little bit of gold, a little mm-hmm. bit of yellow, a little bit of really white. Tell. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Do you mm-hmm. just like root for either one who is yeah. winning? I mean, I'm black. I bleed black and gold, baby. <laughs> I bleed black and gold. I don't know what to tell you. Black and something. <laughs> <laughs> is, that's, your shirt uh, is yellow. Yeah, so here's the thing. <laughs> for for many moons we were considered to be black and gold and this is this is technically golden rod like mm-hmm. remember the crayola crayons yes you know you get all the i, I know the, my crayons this, this, this is golden rod i loved golden rod because of the Steelers' legacy well more importantly because it showed up better than mm. you okay know, that construction paper the the light colors they don't really do. but uh for for decades, we were black and gold. The Steelers, the black and gold steel curtain. You know, that was. That and Wiz Khalifa came along. And Wiz Khalifa came. <laughs> along. You know what? That looks pretty fucking yellow to me, man. And uh, being a Yinzer himself, he said, "I'm going to change the culture." Yeah, he is. That song is actually about a car. What, which car? His car. Right, but. Wait a minute. It wasn't an accident. He he's really mm-hmm. a Yinzer. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't know that. Wow. Born and bred. Yeah, baby. So now he's decided to appropriate the gold and change it to yellow. Correct. And here mm-hmm. we are. Yeah, here we are. Yeah. Now we are forever black and yellow. I think it's gold because there's, there's a soccer team in England that plays in that color and they call it gold. Right, yeah. There you there, go. So. It's, yeah. it's very clearly not yellow. Hunt. You know, yellow doesn't pop like this. Well, I don't really care, but I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just know that there's a soccer team called Wolverhampton Wanderers that plays in that and they call it old gold. They call old it. gold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, old gold, I would have thought would have been 
the knights and mm. the saints color. This is like what? this is like gold, like you would see. Twenty-four karat gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I right. guess the the they, when they call it old gold, they're not. It, it's just the team that calls it that. It's uh. like their sort of name for their uniform. So it's it's not what? that they really call the color that. I guess. What do the saints call their colors? They're black and gold, or they're gold and black. That's a good question. I don't think they refer to. Them. Right, they can't. That's, How could they? They couldn't do that. That's stamped for. Right. You know they're they're not the black and gold, but I think they're like the question. gold and black, maybe. Which, Just who are the Saints? Which, which city is New the Orleans. Saints? New Orleans. Yeah. Okay. I don't think they reference their... Mm. I don't have an answer. Party girl. Again, there's a soccer team whose nickname is the Saints in England, and they play in red and white stripes, Whoa. so it's all totally different. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> they're bringing football to the UK, maybe? So that's rumored. Uh, they may be taking two teams to London. They're testing it out now. The Jaguars uh, played back-to-back -back games last two weeks they wanted to see how much of an advantage seemed to be there yeah we found out <laughs> yeah, fucked around and found out the bills got whacked mm -hmm. they always came back and won but i mean you could just see that it it just seemed that they were unprepared and a little sluggish and and the jaguars just looked you know so now there point. might be some uh there might be some more fcs yeah, they pl they play at Wembley, right? That's where they, I think they so, yeah. do the games. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's an absolutely incredible stadium. Yeah, like, it looks looks it's amazing. One of the best places to. They watch said the whole stadium is just a bunch of Germans who like NFL football. <laughs> I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me because it's so easy to travel around Europe. That yeah. Any any big event that happens at Wembley, like you're going to get a bunch of Europeans yeah. from everywhere around. It was there. kind of funny because um, while the Bills did not look great, it was basically a Bills home game. I mean, it was like eighty percent Bills fans there. Yeah, I mean, you're in a different country, right? Like, it's just going to be whoever's popular, the Jaguars. Right. Although the Jaguars have played a lot in London. <laughs> they have. They're, they always make them go over there. They sent the shit squads early. They're like, yeah, let's see what you guys do with the bottom I, of our barrel. I know something about the Jaguars, actually. Because I know the, the guy that owns them, his son, the guy that owns them, is, I forget his name. His last name is Khan. His son is called Tony Khan, who is a director of both a Premier League soccer team in the UK and the second biggest wrestling company in the world after WWE. Really? He, so they he got... runs AEW. So he is very heavily involved in all three of those, NFL, Premier League Soccer, and wrestling. And he, he like, is a, he's, I follow him on Twitter, and he's like promoting the Jaguars all the time. So I'm sure that they have a big interest in the UK because their owner also owns a, a soccer team, and they probably want to have like a, a, an overlap there. Oh, yeah. Sports are... Sports are big business, man. They are. They're a lot it's, of money. It's really, it's really coming. Sorry, had to fix my mic. It's really, uh, it's really getting to the point now where they realize the global market is just massive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Premier League Soccer's done that a ton. Like they, they market so much in India, China now. Like there's like crazy amounts of money coming in from from those parts of the world. Next steps, poker. Okay. It's very clear. We're just Hopefully. gonna hitch a ride to the WWE and Let's do it. Yeah. You know, just. Hitch our wagon well, to some got, of these things. WWE just got bought out by the company that owns UFC. So the same company now owns both UFC and WWE. Interesting. Which yeah. poker player out there in our community you think would make the best WWE star? Oh, geez. Um, the funny thing is poker players are so unathletic that I feel like nobody <laughs> would be able to do it. Nah, yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta pick the one who has the best, the I, best well, bit. The, you need, the yeah, you is, need, like, you you need you, personality plus a little bit thing, of athleticism. Like, I, plus, I, like, do you want to pick the, the person who has the, 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 like, like the most Olivia charisma? Would be pretty good. The, char the charisma or do you want to go the athleticism? You gotta have it all. You, know? you gotta have yeah, it all. I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a I good think it's Elmuth. 
How many, How many? I don't even think he would wrestle. I think he would just like eat Big Macs in the middle of the ring. He's six five, man. He could yeah. wrestle. He, yeah. Like if you oh, if you rewind Helmuth for like thirty years, he could train mm -hmm. to be a wrestler. You know? Yeah, those super tall guys, they don't even need to be in good shape. Like oh yeah, you, the Undertaker, Kane, yeah. Big Show, like they just throw one uh, I mean, a unitard on them. I mean, yeah. Nick would be pretty good. Nick Shulman. Oh. Well, he'd be a good. He'd be a great announcer, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think he'd just be a good, great character. Yeah. 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 He, yeah. he could. He could figure out a character yeah. that would be pretty fun. Right. I don't know. Do you remember Big Daddy Kane? Uh, vaguely. Uh, or um, he became something else, or maybe I'm mistaking him with with somebody else. Um, Big Daddy Kane was a rapper. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like, you're right. No, <laughs> no, no. no. I'm like thinking of someone different. I am. Uh, he, he was two characters. One of them was a pimp, and I can't remember. Are you talking about the Godfather? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, he was something else too. Uh, uh, I. He was something prior to that, but I, I was. It, I don't know if it's the same guy, but you might be thinking of like the voodoo guy, like Papa Papa Shango or something. I think no, I remember him oh, you also. Remember him? Okay. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he he came back as the Godfather. Yeah. I could see Nick rocking that look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With the cigar. You know, yeah. get him a cane. Exactly. And then, like, he comes out and, like, a train of women is, like, following him to the ring and stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, that, I could see that. We reboot Val Venus. Oh, my God. Just seems like the right thing to do at this don't, point. Don't do that. This no, is just reminding me how Hello. insane the conversation was yes. I had with Abby about how she says anybody can be a pro wrestler. All right. Well, with if you work hard, hard work, enough, I think, you know, anybody could. If you work hard enough, yeah. anybody can do anything that they want. We've established <laughs> this. All right. But seriously, just watch five minutes of pro wrestling and you'll see that's not true. Like, it's, it's insane. Uh, I mean, I will say, like, well, because of the acting background prior, like, Logan Paul fucking killed it. Logan Paul's, yeah, but he's an incredible athlete. Like, yeah. he's, he's got, like, I, I can't even believe he's, like, a YouTube guy because he seems like somebody who's been an athlete his whole life. Like, it's wild some of the stuff he can do. Well, he yeah. was a pretty good wrestler in high school. Oh, okay. Him that make, his, that makes his, sense then. Yeah, he and his brother, like actual wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the guys who are like amateur or high school wrestler guys, they make really good pro wrestlers as well. It's like wrestling is hard enough as is professionally. Acting is hard enough as is professionally. Yeah. Now you have to be like pretty decent at both of them mm -hmm. and not fuck up mid-stage yeah. in order yeah. like, to be good at you it. You also just, you're on live TV like all the time, like every single week. Like that must be so stressful just in itself. Like, We're I can't on here every day. Yeah, tell yeah, me about like, it. I'm on here once a week, and I'm like, okay, I got to go out in front of a few hundred people and talk, and like, what am I going to say? Like all this shit, I can't even imagine being on live TV every in single week. In front of hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> that would oh, be like if, if, the, if the Rock didn't have enough viewers. Like right. it's it's gone from millions <laughs> just, down to just, hundreds. Just yeah. the Rock workshopping his whole bit. <laughs> <laughs> How many viewers do I think mm -hmm. I have? That's Hundreds incredible. Or millions. Uh, let's get to a little bit of news and notes that's going on around the industry. First and foremost, shout out to Pads. He won his fourth W Coop Player of the Series. Job, Pads. Congratulations, Pads. The legend. That was good for fifty three thousand and change, as well as another twenty five k in leaderboard uh, bonuses. So that, he worked that's hard nice to change that. Of course, well, look, <laughs> the the jokes are there, but like. <laughs> Uh, whatever, man. Let's let's stick a pin in that conversation for now. I don't <laughs> want to get back myself. into it now. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a nice chunk uh, of change. I don't remember there being seventy five k in uh, prizes back when we were grinding these leaderboards. Well, seventy five k was probably worth a lot less back, or worth a lot more back then, rather. Right. Sorry. That's true so too. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know, but I feel like pads, pads, and Benny Glazer are going to be the two left when it's all when the dust settles at like the kings of coops, right? Like, I mean, how many how many coops titles do these guys have now? It's insane. Uh, Benny won seven this yeah, series. It's insane. And it's, didn't win player of the series. Like, uh, there can't, and I, I don't know, wow. like, I'm not exactly a mixed game expert, but there can't be anybody else who's better than Benny Glazer 
at, at mixed games as a whole because how much does he crush man like he wins everything it's yeah. insane yeah it is pretty crazy too when you think that you know not that long ago just a year ago he was at one of the biggest 10k no limit final yeah tables. like he's such an underrated guy for like like one of the best in the world he just crushes every format it's crazy he's not he doesn't really play high rollers though right i don't think so but i feel like if he wanted to he could yeah i think it's one of those things when you have that many disciplines like i think shulman's kind of a unique unicorn in that regard mm -hmm. where and uh chidwick would be another one yeah where they're just like good at all the disciplines mm -hmm. uh to to both be good at all the disciplines and test the the high yeah. uh, the high roller scene as well because most of those high rollers, man, they're really cutting their teeth at big bet games. Yeah, yeah. But I also think with, with Chidwick, like, I don't know how much of the other games he plays anymore, right? Like, he plays the PPC, but right. I don't know if his record in those games is the same as Benny's right. in terms of how, many, how much he's won. Like, I think it was probably more before the high roller scene really kicked off that he was playing that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's probably fair. Benny, I, mean, I feel like for 10 years, has just been crushing it. Yeah, like in most cases, people kind of make arguments to try to play the PPC if they're good at big bet games. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of little nuances in the structure that really advocate for if you are particularly skilled at certain big bet aspects. Uh, it's good. I remember Dan O'Brien played it. This must have been like 2011, um, because the no limit round had like a triple ante, something ridiculous. It was like a massive, massive ante, and he's like, my edge in that game alone might just be enough to justify play because he was like somewhat competent at Raz and, mm -hmm. and some of the other games. Just have to make sure that he doesn't uh, fold uh, to a min, almost less than a min raise for heads up in limit games. Well, you know. Gotta work harder. Yeah. Just had to fire a shot at Ryan Lang there. Yeah, Just, that was, you know. That was really, really hurtful. Ryan's catching strays. Why, what did Ryan Damn. do? He folded. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, the no limit guy, you gotta respect the game. I say there's bets. I don't think he's just a no limit guy. No, he's a mixed game guy. <laughs> yeah. But like mostly no limit these days. Like um, most people. There's more action in no limit. Yeah, that's been true since we all got into the arena to begin with. Um, other thing I wanted to follow up on last Friday, I believe it was, we did a an episode um following up on the GTO Wizard Fairplay check. They had released an update that allowed an expansion on the lookup where now you could look at uh, a timestamp down to the second, you could look at turns. Well, bet you could sizing, always look at turns, and ribbons, but you could look at bet sizing, you could look at formations, you could look at uh, what format the ranges were pulled from, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, one of the accused, you uh, are nightmare or you are nightmare rather, um, was basically um, shown to have had a bunch of false positives. So I think there were seven spots looked up. One was a uh, strong correlated hit. One was a very, very poorly correlated hit. And the other five were like not hits at all. They were like MTT spots and heads up sit and goes and shit like that. Um, so I wanted to bring this back up because I had spoke with him off air after the episode had aired. Um, and, you know, he thought we were pretty fair to him, but he wanted to point out that we weren't sure if his account was banned. Like we weren't sure what stars was was currently doing he did confirm that stars was investigating him they have per their protocols uh banned his account while he's being suspended. investigated yeah, yeah sorry yeah. uh suspended his account whatever um while he's being investigated and uh he noted that in the email exchange that they had they specifically pointed to the fact that there was a lot of public scrutiny that drove this investigation to begin with so it's only fair to him i think that now that we have a pretty high degree of confidence that uh he is um not 
breaking any terms of service and not using uh, GTO Wizard as RTA. Uh, obviously, stars should still follow through with their investigation, but I think it's important that we try to fast track this publicly as much as possible. Kind of shine a light on the fact that, you know, after doing more due diligence, the public has kind of uh, deemed these spots to be pretty loosely or uh, not correlated at all to cheating. Um, so I just want to kind of like follow up with that update, maybe uh, try to push it a little further up the, the ranks at stars to try to fast track something like this, because if somebody is being falsely accused, we don't want to get it to a point where anyone who is accused is immediately suspended for four plus weeks uh, every single time that, that anything comes into question. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, kudos to stars for having a, a, a finger to the pulse and listening to the community, but also, you know, it's important. I think that uh, when further evidence comes out that this gets moved up to the top of the pile and he uh, gets his account unlocked. Yeah. Seems important. Um, all right, let's let's uh, we'll try to keep it brief. Let's get your take a little bit on yesterday's show, where we had a pretty lengthy discussion about the notion of hard work being the the differentiator between uh, winning and losing. Yeah, um, I didn't get a chance to see yesterday's pod, so I, I should point that out. But uh, yeah, we had a conversation about this in our group chat the other day, and I feel like the the only thing that I actually disagree on is i think that most people if they tried could like beat one two cash and so i think if you're defining winning at poker as does a person have the capacity to to find some level of stakes where they can make a profit i think most people have that capacity if they put in a lot of effort uh simply because usually at the lowest stakes you're playing against people who aren't really trying very much I think once you get into that realm that we were kind of talking about where you're, you're talking about like an environment where everybody's putting in maximum effort, then yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree in a tough environment, not everybody is going to have the capacity to succeed. But I do think that when you're talking about the scope of people who study poker and why they, why people don't succeed, a lot of the time when people don't succeed, it is because they're underestimating the amount of effort that it takes to get yourself from A to B in terms of I'm losing and now I'm winning at the stakes that, I, uh, that I'm choosing to play. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I think those points are completely reasonable and relatively valid. Um, the, the nuance I would add, I guess, I don't even think it's necessarily pushback, but the nuance that I would add is that uh, to me, the, the issue that I take is in this framework of working harder. Right. right. Like, uh, you know, we kind of spoke about it yesterday mm -hmm. and I got the formula wrong because I'm a bird brain. Uh, <laughs> but like, someone should have booked it when nobody challenged it. And I'm saying somebody yeah, should have. Uh, but when we're talking about the notion of work, like in mm -hmm. its technical definition, it's it's just distance times force. Right. Mm -hmm. Or distance times mass times acceleration. Yeah. And that's that's just a physical thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's easy to put in more effort to that because you can just increase one of the variables right you can increase the distance the force or the acceleration or sorry the the, the mass or the acceleration right um <clears throat> and by being able to hone in on the the variable that you're changing it's easy to put in more effort yeah so the notion of quote-unquote working harder is having a clear objective and uh putting or expelling energy into it when people say this in mind sports or in you know tech or 
uh, investing or, you know, all these areas that we're exploring in order to accrue more money. I don't know what the fuck it means. Mm. Right. So the reason why I didn't accept that there's obviously a low, a low enough stake where anybody can put in a relative degree of effort and show profit. The reason why I had a hard time accepting that is because if they knew what to do, they would be doing it. Right. So it's not really a matter of effort. It's a matter of knowledge. And that's why there's a low enough stake that anybody could beat if they acquire a baseline knowledge that allows them to beat it. I, I think the problem with the messaging is that it implies that people who are playing those stakes and not winning are not trying. And I don't really think that that's true. As a matter of fact, I think that most of them are trying in the wrong ways, either by seeking out people who aren't helpful to them or by uh, just kind of falling victim to all the other intangibles that will set you up for failure, whether that's uh, emotional tilt, uh, whether that is uh, a mental lapse or a lack of knowledge, whether it's fear-based, uh, whether it's just being too conservative or uh, too risk-on. There are a million ways that they're not going to be calibrated that will uh, ultimately lead to their demise. And then on top of that, you know, for the most part, people just aren't getting in a sample. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that by framing it as you just need to put in the work and you need to try harder, especially within the framework of a marketing message, right? Like, yeah. let, let's call this, let's call a spade a spade. This entire tweet was just simply targeting people who are not winning at small stakes and basically saying like, well, you can't do this on your own, but I can be the motivating factor right. to get the, you there. The ultimate goal is like them thinking, well, I'm not working hard enough, therefore I need to buy more Torelli products exactly. to, to win, which of course is totally bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that like, you know, I keep harping on this because it keeps coming up in marketing messages mm -hmm. and I just have a real problem. As somebody who even heavily invests in a life philosophy of like put in the work and grind hard, uh, like I, I don't do things with a lack of effort and I do think that it's obviously very critical, but the thing is, is that it's really more about working more efficiently than it is harder. Oh, yeah, I completely agree there. I, I think that a, you know, one, one aspect of it that I didn't really clarify in the discussion we originally had, but that I think is really important is that if you are working in the wrong way, if you're using methods that are not producing results and are not designed in a way that will produce results over the long term it doesn't even matter how much effort you put in because you're never going to see improvement right, right. it's like it's I, I can't think of the right metaphor like it's the pushing the boulder up a hill or whatever thing it's like you Sisyphus, uh, yeah sisyphus yeah, yeah, yeah. You, like you you aren't going to see progress if you're using the wrong methods and so that's the point <clears throat> where trying harder just doesn't make a difference because you're getting diminishing returns on every little bit of effort instead of working smart and you know being able to put in a reasonable amount of time and get a lot of return on that if you're using the right methods it's like the the lie that uh the the multi-level marketing campaigns uh tell people mm -hmm. this is what they do like they they go out and they say 
you know, here's this product and you need to sell this product and you need to recruit people also to sell this product. And if you work hard enough, you can be a millionaire like me. Mm-hmm. I've done it. And you just need to put in the effort, put in the work, put, put in the hard work, you know, and grind and grind and grind and you'll be a millionaire. Right. And it just doesn't work that way. There's just not enough of the pie right. to go around for everybody. And I think that that's kind of similar how, uh, you know, the poker world works, right? There's, there's people at the top who are just making so much money mm-hmm. and they're, they're, they're the ones that are sucking up all the win rate where the, you, not everybody can win. Obviously, it's a zero-sum game. So it, and I think it, 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 it correlates that way. And that, that's kind of why it feels scummy in a way. Mm-hmm. It feel, you know, when, when, you, when you just say, just work hard and you can do it because that's, what the, that's the same thing that the, the MLL... The ML, yeah. yeah. I, think it, I think when it comes to poker... Uh, people, especially from training products and sites, they kind of want to have something that can last in for as long as possible until it becomes outdated. And the idea is you kind of try to copy paste and give it to different clients. And you think that like, this is the answer. This solves your specific problem. Mm -hmm. But the answer is when it comes to poker, there's not one size fits all, Mm -hmm. right? Some things and some products are going to resonate with some people and some are not. Some are going to be helpful. Some aren't. And the point is you're trying to reach most Mm -hmm. of the baseline, but trying to say that I have the answer for you specifically is never going to work out the way you want it to. Yeah. And I think that one thing that I, I would speak to as a coach as well, having worked with so many different people is that I think the, the assumption is for a lot of people that because poker is a mental discipline, that it's simply a matter of information as to whether you succeed or not so you just you take in the information about how you're supposed to play and then you will be able to play that way as if you know there's no like implementation aspect involved but the reality is that poker works just the same way that any other individual discipline does be it trying to get good at golf trying to learn to play the guitar whatever it is like you have to put in time and energy and repetitions and use good methodologies if you want to go from zero to a certain point. And I think that's the thing that first came to mind for me when I saw this. And so I thought, yeah, people don't work hard enough, but it's only because I, I've seen so many people who don't really seem to grasp that you're not supposed to be able to study for six weeks and go from bad to good. You know, it's not supposed to work that like, way. Simple example, even from called pre-Black Friday to now is our understanding of bankroll management and risk of ruin and variance. Mm-hmm. Where way back when, 10 buy-ins used to be the staple for what you needed in order to move up to the next stake. <laughs> and now yeah. we, we laugh at that because we're like, this is utterly ridiculous. But way mm-hmm. back when, if somebody made a trading product and said, the reason why you're not getting the higher stakes is because you don't have enough bankroll. Here's a product for you to save that. And you say, you listen to the 10 buy-in strategy. It's like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So why when it comes to other training sites and products now, especially when we have the ability for information to not be gatekept as much, like welcome to the internet and adapting as an environment, that there's different sort of ways and methods that you can learn that are potentially able to help you build a foundation. But if you're looking to somebody that has the answers for your foundation, it's not necessarily rooted in some sort of science or math. It's rooted in this person told me to do this. They said it's correct, which means it is. I also just think it overlooks the failure rate, right? Like the game itself just sorts for a massive amount of failure. So sweeping statements, like I think anybody would have the capability to beating the smallest stakes if they put in enough effort, completely ignores all of the variables at which people by nature will just fail, right? Like you could give, if you if you selected 100 people that are all blank slates and you gave yourself one year to teach them how to beat live one, two. And you give them all the same and amount of money. And you gave them all the same amount of money 
and you gave them all the same resources uh, as far as getting better goes, and they all put in comparable effort. Obviously, this is a hypothetical. It's never going to happen. Right, you can't test subject this. Right, but like what I don't think is, is uh, being given credit for is the ways that people fail. It's not necessarily always going to be a lack of effort, right? There's going to be a lot of people in that hundred that just can't get over the emotional swings. There's going to be a lot of people within that hundred that just can't pull the trigger to jam for pot on river with a bluff. There are going to be a lot of people, you know, there are going to be execution failures. There are going to be tilt failures. There are going to be uh, emotional breakdowns. There's going to be boredom. There are going to be people that like self-select out because uh, the game becomes uninteresting to them when they start to play correctly. Right. And I understand that maybe the impetus was that the audience this is geared towards are people that have already passed all those tests. But if you're playing one, two or two, five, it's a, almost a zero percent chance that you've passed all those tests and are still losing. Right. Yeah, I guess in a way like that's kind of almost the point I was making, though, in that I think that with time, a lot of that stuff does fade away. Like I like you mentioned, like over the span of a year. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it would usually take longer than that. But I would argue that over a space of three years, five years, like if you gave it enough time, I think the person who doesn't feel comfortable jamming for pot, if you study enough and you get to the point where you understand why it works and you, you have the conditions that allow you to, um, to implement... I think that person can get comfortable, but it sounds like you don't think that. No, I do think that, okay. but I think that that's only going to be one out of a hundred people. Uh, okay. Right. I mean, like it's such survivorship bias. Like of that hundred, how many of them are going to make it to year five? That's the undertones of this tweet that aren't being spoken about. Right? How long are you going to stay in the It's game? literally just saying like work harder, get to X. Right. But the truth of the matter is, is like in the process of getting to X, most of you will fall by the wayside. I, yeah, I think I'm thinking about it less practically than you are. Like, yeah. I, think you're, I think a lot of what you're saying is, is obviously really relevant in practice. I think what I'm looking at is like... If there were it, a template. It, yeah, in, in theory, like if, if, we, if, we taught, if we were able to kind of do it in a vacuum and conduct some kind of experiment, like mm -hmm. how long would it take? I think there is a... The, the threshold of where someone actually... like no matter how much time you give them is incapable of doing it. I think that their number of people is very low. Good example would be uh, the way the stables work and the filtration process prior. Right. Like what's the, what's the churn mm -hmm. month to month, year to year, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I, I think that that's a really great example because anybody who would be willing to, to take on this endeavor and say like, okay, I'll take a hundred random losers and turn them into winners. Well, actually Nick Howard's already done this. Yeah. Right, he'd be a very easy one to source. He started with a group of six, but right? Yes. And none of them, or maybe like one of them, ended up coming out of it. But it helped him build a process. Whatever. The whole point is that there's an attrition rate. You can talk to me about it. Yeah. Yeah. the The, the point is there's there's a big attrition rate, and uh, that's what's not being spoken about. Is that the irony here? Is the message is actually geared towards the majority of the people who would fall victim to the attrition rate. Right. Right. It's targeting the most likely to fail. Right. So it's not a matter of if you're a good coach, then you can get anybody who is in this current plight to break even or winning. Yeah. It's you can get anybody who is in this current plight and is, is self-selected to have the attributes to get to winning, right? Yeah, I so, see what you mean. Because it, it does feel like that's very true. Like the people who are most likely to listen to Torelli's message he's putting out here are the people who are not 
as likely to succeed. Exactly. And I think that was, uh, you know, Landon got a ton of blowback because he, he honed in on IQ. And, mm -hmm. But that's only one variable, right? And the truth of the matter is, it's easy to poke holes in that because you can say like, well, the, the difference in win rate between somebody who has a 120 IQ and a 140 IQ probably is random, right? There, there's a certain, um, there's a certain uh, diminishing return to higher IQ. The same as there would be in height in basketball. You know, the best basketball player in the world is an eight foot tall, right? It's just that you have to be tall to be one of the best basketball players. Right. So it sorts for these attributes, but being at the extremes doesn't necessarily have an increasing return. But that's going to be true for everything. That's going to be true for risk. That's going to be true for emotional stability. That's going to be true for bankroll, right? Like if you have an infinite bankroll, uh, but you are risk intolerant or risk averse, it doesn't matter. Right. right there there's there's they cancel each other out you're not going to go play one million two million versus andy bill yeah, you know we, in spite we, of that maybe being the best spot you got we make go a joke about at some point we'll have a segment of like rating different poker players that we know in yeah. like different categories mm -hmm. and like it kind of proves the point that there are many different outliers that can succeed but they are outliers right because they have high points in one attribute and then there may be average in other ones that we may hone in on right so we are hyper focused on your knowledge of game theory and so we, we elevate everybody who's really theoretically sound. They're 10 of 10 in game theory, or they're 9 of 10, like the computer's a 10 of 10, whatever. Sure. But maybe they have low attributes in other aspects, be it EQ or emotional stability or tilt or, you know, all these other bankroll mitigating factors, bankroll managements, whatever, right? And then there might be other people who are like really fucking good at those things. They're 10 of 10 yeah. in bankroll management, in being uh, risk on, like whatever the case may be. But they're only a 7 in theory or a six in theory they can all help elevate you know and that's why i think you know i i'm kind of beating a horse at this point we can move on but that's why i i, I have such a problem with these simplified messages the game is not that simple and it never will be you know it's 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 we have to at some point put some respect on the fact that those people who do make it to the level of survivorship bias really got through the muck you know, there were a lot of, of getting beaten down and remaining uh, tenacious throughout it all that allowed them to survive. And that's not even disqualifying the survivorship bias in and of itself. Like, we're all lucky to have been yeah. chosen. I think, mm -hmm. I think I'm allowed to say this. <laughs> um, but, like, we, we know from people that we're close with that, like, in Ali's stable, Ali went broke backing people. Yeah. And it's not because he can't teach, but it's because it's the conversion process is hard right you know or in theory it's like oh let me just copy paste myself into a bunch of different people and we're all gonna get rich mm -hmm. but yeah. clearly that's not what happened right yeah. and i've seen that i've i've been part of a stable where it was me and a bunch of other guys who were good players but a bunch of people went went through a downswing at the same time the coaches didn't have a lot of time to dedicate to coaching to help everybody get out of it and in the end everybody just like a bunch of people just stayed in makeup for a while just like trying to grind their way out and it got to the point where Scoop was coming around and the, the coaches didn't feel like it was worth investing a big chunk more money into trying to recoup their losses from a bunch of guys who were, were in makeup. So they were just like, ah, we're just, we're just going to cut everybody loose. Like, we're just going to end the stable. And it was, it was a, a, a stable that theoretically failed, but not because any of the players were lacking in, in, uh, in ability or lacking in, in what it took to succeed. It was because circumstances just conspired to make it such that Everybody ran bad at the same time, and, and it just became 
like it, it all fell apart you know yep. so there's so much variance there. also yeah. even like looking at a stable sense that did work out and does work out very well um like pads started and created bit b with his friends mm -hmm. and through their filtration process they found the people that were young hungry and wanted to win enough yeah. and then gave them the good system that they had in place to succeed and they're like the best one of the biggest stables of all time mm -hmm. it's very very high success rate and it's not just about um call it skill but it's about the system that you put in place yeah 100 percent. and and you're like the stable filters for the people that don't actually want it that will not work hard mm -hmm. right that that's that's the underlying part that is not being considered whenever we throw these blanket terms of, well, anybody could do this. <laughs> it's like, well, what you're really saying is anybody who already possesses the discipline, right. the, the tenacity. Attributes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The bare minimum to uh, actually get yourself to that point. And you're disqualifying almost everybody who's reading that message, right? So that was the big thing is like, he even added the caveat of like, Either you're not working hard enough or you're not capable. And what I was really honing in on is the vast majority of the people you're messaging to are already disqualified. Through the mm -hmm. capability. Yeah, standpoint. and, and you know, capability makes it sound so negative, right? right. He flipped it on its head and said, most of you are capable. Are capable, right? Yeah. But it, it really is ignoring the human aspect of it. Because, like, you're right. If, we're in a, if we were in a, a vacuum here, we could easily show that almost any human being could do it. But... That's if we eliminate their human traits. We eliminate the things that allow them to fail to begin with. Any machine that we can input the correct system in. Exactly. Will win. Machines yeah. can do this. Yeah. Every machine that we teach a strategy to <laughs> will be able to beat one, two, and two, five. Yeah. The more you, the, the more you hear it out, the more you realize like, oh, it's kind of funny, and it's like right. very right. based in live true. poker. <laughs> live poker is really fucking profitable because humans play it. Yeah. yeah. And they play mm -hmm. it very slowly, and they play it in a very social setting. Like when you start to strip those things away it does become a much more mechanical game where, you know, anybody who's replicating machine strat will do a lot better. And that's why the people that have the ability to adapt machine strategy as well as like human element do very well. Exactly. Yeah. But not everybody's capable of that. And that's okay. That is okay. It's just okay. <laughs> why do we say this not? Like there's this, it's okay. Yeah. Poker's uh, a hard game. It is hard. All right, <laughs> moving on today. GTO Wizard introduces a lot of new updates, including a long-awaited node locking. Um, I think you already played with this a little bit, huh? You were saying you did a lesson with it earlier. I did, today. yeah. I. Uh, it's funny. Fausto texted me at like midnight last night. He was like, "They have node locking. They are. They are. They, <laughs> they released node come locking out until next year, right? Uh, no, they, they've been saying for a while that they had it in oh, in, in place. Okay. Like the next stuff is like they're down the line. It's like multi-way and ICM and stuff gotcha. like that. But for for, they've been saying for a while like node locking was coming and um yeah so i got a text from fausto last night i took a look at it uh this morning i had a session shout out to ricardo from our most recent academy mm -hmm. um i had a session where we actually played around with it a little bit ran a few node lock spots it's really really good um it's a streamlined and much simpler and easier to use version of the node locking that used to exist on po and gto plus and things like that um it it's very simple to use, very straightforward. You can, from what I can tell, you can use it in conjunction with the trainer and the range builder and things like that. And you can test yourself on building a range to exploit a specific weakness, which is great. Um, yeah, looking forward to using it a lot more because it really seems like it's uh, one of the additions that a lot of people are gonna get a lot of value out of. Yeah, <laughs> having spoken with Matt of Fairmount, um, they are very conscious of the live poker player also. Yeah, they much more so than than I think they were to begin with. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of these updates actually um, 
kind of dovetail nicely into uh, improving the live player study. So they released some deep stack nine-handed mm -hmm. cash uh, sims, um, preflop specifically. They also released a bunch of uh, what they call research preflop sims. Yeah. So these are basically uh, a lot of different uh, environments where there are multiple different preflop sizings that you can choose from. Now, I, I, am I correct in that these are for the database aspect? Um, what I believe they did, and I'm not 100% on this, is I think these research sims were done with Holden Resources Calculator rather than being done with Munker um, or any other solver that does really detailed preflop stuff. Right. Um, and so they don't have the they don't have postflop. Uh, enabled for these sims oh, okay um, but they're in the they're in the archive so that you can they're, they're particularly good for using as your pre-filled ranges to right. to import into wizard ai mm -hmm. um and they have you know they, it, it basically shows you why or or how a given preflop sizing becomes the best sizing in a certain spot so it like if you 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 look at the 200 big blind 3x open for example Every position will have multiple three bet sizes, and it it it's sort of providing you the evidence that this size is the best three bet size, and showing you you know do spots exist where three bet sizes are being mixed or four bet sizes are being mixed or whatever else, right? Yeah. So, so I'm looking at this now. You're right. Yeah. Most of these spots are all preflop solutions. Yeah. Uh, they do have some new solutions to their database in all spots, though. Uh, it looks like they have some new solutions for uh, GG six max. Um, with multiple preflop opening sizes mm -hmm. they have uh this is true for um in general and uh simplified uh they also have research spots for these so it looks as though um they are continuing to expand the database lookup which i i think is probably a good business decision on their end but for those who are serious about study just doesn't fucking matter i i think what they're going to do or i haven't spoken to them about this but what i imagine is they won't really, now that they have the AI, I don't think they'll keep adding to the post-flop library because it doesn't really make sense to do that instead of just improving the functionality of the AI. Right. But the pre-flop library, because they don't have multi-way pre-flop AI sims yet, mm -hmm. continuing to add stuff to the pre-flop library is certainly something I think they will do. I know they added a bunch of new MTT stuff today with larger fields, like a 1,000 player field. Um, so the, the pre-flop, the library is going to be mostly pre-flop. And then the AI stuff is what you use if you want a post-flop sim. Like, yeah, I personally hope it goes that way because I think yeah. that it's a much more, it's a better mitigating factor. But I don't necessarily think that that will be the case because I do think that as far as like onboarding new people to study, the database lookup is just worth a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it does look like they did add to the database in uh, a, a few spots. Uh, I'm not sure what six max cash drops are, but it looks like it's uh short stack cash games like that, 10 big blind or 20 that's big blind. the um i think that's the gg games where they like sometimes randomly drop a certain number of big blinds oh kind of like yeah. bomb pots yeah i think okay. so i'm not or sure not bomb pots uh splash pots yeah i'm not, yeah. I'm not sure 100 percent, but i, I think I, you're I think correct that's what it is yeah i think you're correct because it says with limps no limps at 100 big blinds so right, that probably okay. makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. but yeah it looks like that they are adding these to the full database including post flop uh so okay. uh i imagine that's good <laughs> i selfishly want the the library to the post-op library to kind of cease to exist <laughs> because I think that like it's the lowest hanging fruit for people that otherwise are just like not very good or studied. Mm. Um, but you know, whatever, like this is the day and age we look at or we're, we're living in. It's kind of interesting to me because I wonder how the chess community would have reacted when the first like 
a, like Stockfish came out. Mm-hmm. You know, they thought, oh, is this the end of chess? Well, there isn't. Was there a lot of money involved in chess back then? I don't. I don't know. Probably I mean, not. I, right? probably not. Ever, I think there's probably more money involved in chess now than yeah. there ever has been before. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, like, it's a hit to the pride, I guess. But like for poker, we know that the live, like, how much do you think the live environment is going to change? We've had a lot of discussions over the last year of people like using Wiz in real time. I mean, think about when we were leading up to the WSOP, how many conversations we had about how are they going to police people using their phone in real time to look up the database, mm-hmm. right? And it's getting better. It's getting continue to get better. They're getting ICM databases now, post flop solves. They are, and then but now tournament stops are aware Policing. of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where before they kind of weren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so, I guess the point is like if we're getting to a degree where we're concerned about in game cheating in the live element it means that for sure people who used to put in no effort and no study are probably practically looking at a lot more spots they which are. is fine it, it, it's it's fine it is what it is. it is and in some cases it might actually be more difficult for people in this regard where if you look at a chart and then you realize oh i'm not supposed to jam this end but i would have if i didn't look at yeah. a chart and then yeah. to play post flop or people that have looked at something like snapshot or like it's kind of wild where a couple of years ago I think we had the whole conversation of is Snapshot cheating and right. now we've, we've moved on to yeah. is AI databases in <laughs> yeah. real time considered it's funny. cheating? funny. What I also think is really relevant is that now that now that these tools exist that can allow you to get even deeper insights and do exploits and node locks and things like that, there's there's an added benefit to being the person who takes time away from the table to study it. And there's a decreased benefit in being the kind of person who just lazily either uses it to cheat or just studies it in a way where you never look at the node locks, you just look at the baseline sims and things like that because the people who are actually taking the time to study using the additional tools that have the ability to go deeper into a sim and look at you know what happens if your opponent's making mistakes here or there or whatever, the, the value that you get from that is really big con- compared to what you get from just taking a quick glance at an output and, and trying to implement it, you know? So I think there's, the more tools come out, the more benefit you get from being the person who's able to, to take the time to actually dig into the, the nuance. Yeah, uh, just to answer a question from chat real quick, Stu Gotts asked if they've adjusted for Rake yet. Yes, they, uh, he says he's a live player who doesn't uh, use it because of that. But no, they put out live sims today, so they have nine-handed deep stack cash, I think up to 300 big blinds with 10% rate capped at two big blinds, which is pretty... Mm-hmm. Uh, uniform for I, the live room. I think they only have 200 bigs, though. I don't think. Oh, I thought I saw three, three but maybe you you're. Might, right. I mean, I didn't take a detailed look, so I. But I, I don't. I guess I wouldn't promise people they have 300. Yeah, it jumped out at sure. me. Uh, so let's see. They, I know they have research sims at 300. Okay, but you those may are, be right. Those are chip EV, mm-hmm. and I don't think they have raked 300 big blinds. I, I think I'm not 100. percent I think you might be right. I'm looking at it now. It says Nymax Cash General. Uh, two new situations. 10 percent rake uh two big blind caps stack depths are 150 and 200 big yeah blinds. there we go so we have yeah, we right. have deep stacks so we have 150 and 200 but we don't have 300 and right that's, that's fine you know? gentlemen um, but, i have a yeah. i have a question for someone who's just starting to get into to solvers and how they work um could you quickly explain or at least um i don't want to say in layman's terms but I, I don't know what else to use um what is node locking sure. um and and how does it work node locking is basically running a solve but telling the solver you have to do this with this hand or with these hands on this board. And you can either lock the entire strategy and force the solver to play a certain specific strategy and then see how the other side of the solver exploits that. Or you can lock specific hands. So you can say, well, I know my opponent is always check raising a set here. So I'm going to lock them into check raising a set. 
but I don't know anything else, so I'm going to leave everything else unlocked, and I'm going to see what kind of adapt adaptations the solver is making to cater to that. So yeah, and they also added uh, another really cool feature where you can compare the nodes. Yes. So you can compare the actual equilibrium node that you initially ran with the node locked. Mm -hmm. uh, so does this mean, um, like, I'll give you a for instance, if, um, if I'm raising from the button, I'm playing someone who's a reg, mm -hmm. and he's incorporating more three bets from the small blind, like with yeah. four or five suited and six, mm -hmm. seven suited, seven, eight suited, right. maybe things that maybe the, the machine isn't doing. Is yeah. that something that can be implemented? Yes. Well, you to, to actually node lock preflop, you would need, they, they don't have that yet because you would need to use a preflop solver to figure out like, what should I be four betting? But if you wanted to lock the, if you wanted to say, well, my opponent's three bet range is wider than what the solver thinks it is. All, all you would have to do is you would have to just pre-fill a spot, import it into GTO Wizard AI, and then you could edit their preflop range to include hands that wouldn't usually be in there okay. and then run the solve. On top of that, what you could also do is you could say, well, on this particular flop, I think they're c-betting for this size instead of the size the solver mm -hmm. wants to use. And I think they are c-betting more often with these hands or they're checking with exactly this kind of a range. And you can lock that in and see what the solver is telling you to do in response to that. So okay. for, for example, this morning I locked a spot where, you know, they're, it's a very dynamic flop, like nine, eight, six, two spades, and they're never checking back a set or two pair, right? I just locked that. Immediately, I was able to run that spot, see what happens on a blank turn if they're never checking back a set or two pair. And I get a, get a response for what I'm, how my strategy looks on the turn if they're playing well versus if they're never slow playing anything. So right? am I correct in saying that node locking helps you exploit weaknesses yes. in, in your yeah. opponents? That's exactly yeah. it. That's, that, okay. that's the whole point of it, yeah. Absolutely. Right, like I, I, we, I was speaking with Berkey the other day, like in, in the player pool that I, I play against, mm -hmm. um, I see that like on monotone boards, right, usually it's, it's going to be a small bet, right? In theory. In theory, In theory, right. But the, it's always a big bet that comes right. in, right? So mm -hmm. like, so then you just lock it for a big bet yeah, and, and then you see what your response is to, to well, that. Well, previously, previously you could lock it and you could force them to use a certain size, but what, okay. it, what it would do is it would use the optimal range for that size. Right. So mm. it, would, it would say, I'm only able to use this size, but I'm still going to bet with a well-rounded range. Now, right. what you can do is you can say, well, they're only using a big size and they're only betting with value and the ace of the suit. Right. Okay. And what happens now if that's their exact betting range? Right. Gotcha. Or, the, uh, or the whole opposite extreme mm -hmm. of like the range betting for pot. Right. Right. That type yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. Right. yeah. If that mm -hmm. was happening, like all sorts of extreme absurd things you can test out and you can also do it through multiple streets. This is so, so this is like you said, they're, they're um, you know, looking at, at the live players, this is so good for live yeah, because this is what powerful. happens all the time in live, right? Mm -hmm. You just see wild shit right. and you're able to just now load, node lock those in and see what your response is. And the be. way the AI interface mm -hmm. is, is it's everything is just a click, yeah. right? So the big thing, like one of the big reasons why I hated using PO and I never put a lot of time and effort into it is because the UX UI was awful. Yeah, this is so much better. Node locking was so tedious and took so mm -hmm. much time and mm -hmm. learning how to subtree was so frustrating. Uh, it, it, everything was just time consuming, right? Like to get one output, I would spend 30 minutes to an hour depending on, and then if you start to run deeper SPR spots, you might be looking at like days, Yeah. right? Now it's just literally your fingertips. And you can, what I enjoy about it is you can play. 
you just play around with so many different scenarios until you land on something where you're like, okay, this actually replicates what I think I see in the wild. Mm -hmm. Cause we never know. We never have right. pure vision over right. what's actually happening, but we start to see enough showdowns. We build a build where we build a bit of an intuition and we say like, okay, I have a pretty high degree of confidence of like, this is what's happening, mm -hmm. but I have no way of testing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what to get out of this. Now Hi there's a way. Right. proficient people are molding right now. I know. Yeah. You guys put a lot. Oh, oh, you're saying because this is out. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it took a lot of energy to get right. proficient. They're yeah. removing the gatekeep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One really cool thing that you can do that I that I did this morning is look at let's say a river spot where you've already locked the flop in the turn, so they get to the river with a bunch of bluff catchers and maybe a few strong hands, and. Obviously, at a certain point on the river, if they're folding beyond a certain frequency, you're now bluffing with every possible bluff because they're overfolding, right? Mm. And if you get to a certain spot and you say, well, I know they're calling the river with these hands, what you can do is you can lock it at, okay, 100% call with these hands. And then you can use the slider to take the rest of the range, the hands that are like break-even bluff catches, and you can just keep running it and see at what point of confidence do you need to have in how often they're going to fold their bluff catches before you now need to start or need to stop bluffing, right? So like I, what I did was I had a spot where they're calling all their two pairs and sets on the river. And with their one pair, I was like moving it around and it was like, okay, if as soon as I get to where I'm like 50-50 that they might bluff catch me with one pair here, now it means they're actually over calling, which means I just stop bluffing. But if I'm like 90% sure they're not gonna call with one pair, I just bluff everything. So it's really, really good to just use the sliders and, and try to figure out your bluffing frequencies based on your confidence level, stuff like that. There's tons of cool stuff so you can do. Not like in the necess not necessarily a counter, more as a common response to node locking as a whole. Because when node locking X amount of years ago kind of became more prevalent in some form of study, you kind of realize that basically when one person is defensive somewhere, you are offensive somewhere else yeah. and mm -hmm. inverse. So it's not at this point necessarily the difference of that changing, but how easy it is to look at and understand. It's the precision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you can actually lock into some level of precision mm -hmm. uh, where you don't leave yourself open to a huge counter exploit or an yeah. obvious counter exploit, right? The huge counter exploits will always, if you're extreme in your exploit, there will obviously be an extreme counter. But um, I think the important part in the sense of the extreme is the machine is so fragile. Any small deviation by X percent, like you might think 5% check back or 5% bet isn't that much. But in solve, it's extreme. It's very extreme. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the nature of chaos, right? Like small change can yield uh, anything from a small yeah. to a very large. And that's result. poker as a whole, though. You're just gambling that you have an idea of their mistakes better than they do yeah you're saying oh like they're too weak here i'm gonna bluff range and i'm just gonna trust that it's gonna be good yeah. and then like having the mental f capacities to say even if it doesn't work my read is still probably correct and that's the hard part it's tough to juggle yeah it's definitely work tough to juggle <laughs> okay <laughs> we did do a little bit of work while we were at big bear uh how hard we, did we work we spent some time looking at uh it's funny i wanted to use the trainer to like go over a few dozen spots and we ended up spending two hours on one <laughs> which was pretty remarkable it really uh, was like an office level segment yeah of it, you and i looking at each other and then everyone like having chime in yeah it was fun it's like fire drill um <laughs> we're not actually going to go over that spot but what the conversation turned to from the spot that we looked at is um how do you play turns as the aggressor when draws complete. So, uh, you know, in other words, like when you're taking aggressive lines 
and then the draw fills, of course you're going to have a portion of your range that uh, improve upon that draw filling. That's not the, really the question at hand. It's how do you play everything else? When you bet ace-jack on jack-deuce-three, two spades, and the turn's a spade, how do we go about this situation, right? Like, what, what types of hands now become too weak to follow through on? How worried of the flush card do we need to be? How worried of the open-ender hitting do we need to be? That type of stuff. And uh, the answer isn't incredibly simple. You know, it's not, it's not as simple as saying like, well, don't be worried at all or be overly concerned. Well, herein right? lies the issue with saying that you have the answer for yeah. many spots. Right. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. so much nuance and complexity where... The answer is always just, it depends. It is. Like, it really is. And to some, and to many, that's a very like reductive slash annoying answer, but it's just true. Right. You know, right. so it just depends on the combos in range for opponent, combos in range for you. And these things are going to change on different straight and flush completing cards. Right. The, the hard part really is, if the answer in every spot is it depends, the hard part is knowing what it depends on. Right. right? So like knowing should, what size I bet this turn with, like what does that depend on? What variables are going to influence that? Because that's really what's going to lead you to an answer. It's not necessarily going to be a question of what preference do I have? Like what, what size feels good in this spot? It's going to be... It depends on something and what variables am I looking at to find that answer? I think that's where we could start to break it down to a baseline heuristic is that um, whether or not we bet will be hyper dependent upon the equity our hand possesses, possesses the uh, the blockers our hand possesses, you know, a myriad of things like can our hand improve? Is our hand uh, static to its equity that's only going to get worse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? million different considerations at the hand level. Mm -hmm. However... What we will recognize is that we will have bets, right? So this is where I think the heuristic comes from. When the draw completes, what general size will we be utilizing when we do choose to bet? Because once you flesh out the size, then you can start to fill the bucket with hands that feel comfortable at that size. Mm -hmm. And when you arrive at the point where you're like, I think my hand wants to bet, but it really doesn't feel comfortable for that size, then you're probably somewhere around the indifference point. Yeah. You know, like when you have ace, jack, no spade on uh, jack, three, deuce, ten of spades, it's like, okay, well, kind of want to bet, feel like I have a pretty strong hand, but also like, you know, I don't really want to bet 75% pot, that kind of thing. So like maybe, maybe this is the, the, the point of indifference. Maybe it's not ace, jack, maybe it's queen, jack, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. somewhere there's a point where internally you're like, this doesn't feel all that great to me any longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of how solve buckets in some regards where that's where the mix comes in. Mm -hmm. And then we're trying to get to the uh, base level standpoint of saying, okay, let's just bet these and then check this part of the mix, you know? And it's also predicated on whether or not you even bet the flop in the first place. Right. Because now you have to say, okay, did they fold these gutters that came in with this certain card or did they fold these hands or did they not even get the chance to fold because I checked? So there's a lot of different reasons when a turn completes a draw or completes like a flush. It's like, well, how much of their range connected with this card and did I bucket them into a narrower range through a bet? Right. Because once you mm -hmm. bet, they're allowed to have folds. Yeah, the, the easiest differentiator here, I think, is, is when you can hone in on any specific terminology that you can use to help simplify the equation. So the most, I think the most prevalent one or the best one is how capped your opponent's range is, right? If you can look at a spot and ask yourself, how capped are they here? If the answer is not capped at all, 
The answer is they're completely uncapped because, for example, the flush completed the turn and they have a lot of flushes in their range. It's immediately going to be a cue that you cannot easily justify just taking a really big bet, overbet kind of a strategy. If they are capped, if the turn's a brick and the draws didn't get there at all, now they're probably more likely to just be you know, mostly possessing one pair, and that's immediately a cue that you get to polarize a lot more. But if you can answer that question, you can immediately start to get a sense of how much offense am I going to be playing here? How easy is it going to be for me to polarize? Um, because whether or not your opponent can have any kind of nut hands in range is a, a really big factor uh, in, in influencing what they're actually going to be doing against your bet. Right. Yeah, so we do have a spot to look at here. Uh, I pulled up the GTO Wizard Trainer set Guapo up. And it's going to be an easy one in some regards, but not so easy in others. So, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll just run through it. I know a flush card comes on the turn, but, you know, we don't know that in theory whenever Th we're... That's a sick SPR. What are we, SPR of 60? <laughs> yeah, so we're looking at... Uh, SPR of 62 and We're all. looking at a single raise pot for roughly um, 400 big blinds effective. Uh, so the way that you manipulate this in, in the AI is uh, you can't do more than 250 big blinds, right? Yeah. But the way to manipulate this is to just create an SPR that is similar to deeper stack. Mm -hmm. So if you're 400 effective in a single raise pot, there's going to be roughly seven blinds in the middle um, whenever you arrive at the flop. So, uh, you know, basically you can just set up something comparable to that uh, at 250 big blinds. So we're, we're, we're somewhere in that neighborhood. We're about 400 effective single raise pot. Uh, we see a 10, 3, 2, 2 spade board. We flop the nuts. Uh, and these are the options that we have available to us. We can go uh, check, quarter pot, or two-thirds. Uh, I set this up to optimal sizing, so we're never really going to use a larger size than this. That's That should be abundantly clear anyway on a relatively uh, dry... Really? Does it, does it not want to use... Because I, I would have thought our overpairs would want to go big here. I think the issue is SPR probably. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's, sure. we're probably just like so absurdly yeah. deep that mm -hmm. like, overpairs are like not. <laughs> right. They don't want to start right. like, yeah. really start the three, yeah. whatever right. three is. Right, like right. Hundred percent. Like, <laughs> at, at like a hundred bigs, yeah. this would be like a really good big bet board, but yeah. yeah, it just doesn't seem that way here at this depth. We run it for two E and three E. I think two E at this. Or, uh, sorry, I think three E at this depth was two hundred percent pot, <laughs> uh, and two E was five hundred percent pot. <laughs> just the so twenty bigs into a pot yeah. of four. Yeah, like, it's, it's just it. not a fan yeah, of that. Quick uh, disclaimer: E just means equal sizes. So if yes. we go three E, three equal Thank sizes, you. two E, two equal sizes. Yes. yes. Thank you. Um, so yeah, especially you know versus a big blind range that's going to be pretty wide here. I think that we want to turn this into a three street game more often than not. Um, I I think this is a pretty clear quarter pot spot. Yep. Uh, we're probably going to be range betting this board. Uh, can't imagine we're going to make any errors with top top set. Uh, you would I assume probably have if you want to play a two sizing strat. You would have the larger size here yeah. with a good chunk of your range. Your overpair type hands. Ten overpair. Yeah. Your 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 strong tens. Uh, your gut shots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you want to simplify this to a single bet, I imagine it would just reduce down to quarter pot. Yeah, I would imagine that you would just quarter pot range instead mm -hmm. of 75 range. All right, yeah. get us to the turn, Guap. Did oh, he check raise us? I don't know. Let's see. Oh. Attack. It'd be fun. No. Nope, called. Okay. Now it what? It all gets there. Now what? <laughs> it was looking what? for the polar raise. <laughs> like, like it, that, was, yeah. it was looking for it. Well, that's the worst card in the deck. What do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so the ace of spades comes off on the turn. What do you do, Brian? The SPR is still incredibly deep. We'll find out. Um, <laughs> and this clearly poses a bit of a problem for uh, 
some of our hands, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have a set, so this isn't going to be super sticky, but the question really does arrive at what do we do uh, with our range whenever we arrive at these certain turn cards? And like I said, I think the answer that we ultimately want to come to is, well, we are going to have bets and we can fill the bucket up with hands that want to bet here um, as, we, as we see necessary. But the real question is, what sizings are we going to be choosing whenever we do choose to bet? Now, the Ace of Spades is very particular because it's not just a flush completing card. It's also an over and it completes a straight, mm -hmm. right? So what we really have to ask ourselves is um, what types of hands will our opponent be incentivized to continue when we choose to bet? And will that change whether we bet small, medium, or large? The answer is obviously always going to be yes uh, to the will that change based off of our sizing, right? So I think whenever we are choosing to follow through with a bet here on the turn, we want to have one pair of hands that we can get value from, like our ace X, right? Mm -hmm. We also want to have uh, a lot of our two pair hands, like ace 10, ace three, ace two, that we may have in range. These are going to be layup bets. Uh, our sets are going to be layup bets. And all we're talking about is if we look at the equity distribution, we're looking at the higher equity hands. Flushes are obviously always going to bet. I can't imagine any flush is really going to check back. And 4-5 is going to want to bet. So this is going to round out our value. Uh, we're going to have plenty of bluffs. We're going to have a lot of Broadway hands that have a single spade. This is a hijack opening uh, single raise pot, right? So we're going to have a lot of king-queen off, king-jack off, queen-jack off. These types of hands that are gut shot flush draws, these are going to be our natural bluffs, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's easy for us to fill the bet bucket. Why then are we choosing this 40% pot instead of just like blasting? Why aren't we going like, pot or pot and a quarter pot and a half we have really strong hands in this range yeah ufc <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 partly that it's partly the fact that we're betting into a range that contains flushes but it's also when you think about the, the very top portion of our range part of the problem on flush boards is that when we have a flush it's now harder for us to get value because mm -hmm. when we have something like king jack of spades here stuff like king 10 with the king of spades or king t or jack 10 with the jack of spades doesn't exist in villain's range so when we have two spades in our hand villain is inherently more likely to have a hand without a spade and when that happens and we bet big they have a lot of hands that just have easy folds yep. so we end up wanting to actually size down in a lot of these spots not just with the sets and stuff that are scared of the the flushes but actually with the flushes as well because we just don't get a lot of value if we bomb it with king jack of spades here since they just have too many non-spade hands that can't continue are you right. trying to make their like the middling portion of the range yeah. different we're trying to make we're right. trying to make like a 10 without a spade indifferent we're mm -hmm. trying to bet a size right. that they have some incentive to call right. there where if you bet too small then they have they just have a trivial easy call. call decisions if you bet too big they have easy exactly call like if, if you pot right. it here like 10 9 of hearts or whatever just gets to fold yeah That's, sick sick sorry, bonus yeah. no you're good uh like sick bonus by the way when you choose the b40 you also get to gain information of their range as if they do have a two-card hand as well. Like if you flush or flush them, they're going to put in raises a lot of the time for right. you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're going to do the hard work where you can kind of do this bet as a probe and then figure out what to do on river right. in some spots where if they had a flush, they would have found a check raise on the turn. Right. And that's the other thing about these flush draw boards that flush over flush is almost always just going to get all in anyway. Like you're, you're not really going to have to like try super hard to get your opponent to put in money with a worse flush here because in a heads up pot the likelihood of flush over flush is low enough that they're it's not like they're going to somehow find a fold with a seven high flush or something so you're not really trying to 
aggressively put a ton of money in to get them to bluff catch that hand you're just expecting that they're going to raise it anyway and you just can bet small as yeah I, I think brian pointed out something that is a great heuristic for people to anchor to that maybe they don't think about enough every bet you make comes with a point of indifference and very often rather than thinking why am i betting this hand is it for value protection etc cetera, etc cetera? what's more important is thinking to yourself what portion of my opponent's range do i make indifferent with this size mm -hmm. right because if we go full pot we start to make almost all one pair hands very uncomfortable if they don't have a spade, right? And that's not necessarily going to be a good thing when we think about the stronger portions of our range, our sets, our straights, our flushes, our two pairs. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the bulk of our value betting range, right? Right. So going too large here helps our bluffs, sure, but we don't really care to ever build a strategy around helping our bluffs. Yeah. People think like, oh, well, I, I want them to fold this hand. Like I want them to, I want to, I want to win the pot. You know, people are mm -hmm. like, they're, they're thinking about indifference in terms of, you know, what, what gives my opponent an uncomfortable decision? Well, you know, oh, if I, if I have, if my opponent has 10, nine of hearts and I bet big here, well, that's an uncomfortable decision. Like, no, it's not. Like if you bet, if you just bomb it here and they have a 10 with no spade, it's a really comfortable fold. You know, right. it's not, it's not indifferent. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not that you, you know, they're uncomfortable because they have to fold. They actually had a really easy fold. Yeah. Most of the money, if not all of it in regards of where you're going to win the most money in poker is through the middle. Right. You know, if you make the middle really annoyed, you're going to allow more mistakes to happen. Yeah. yeah. And I, I always come back to just thinking of it in terms of give them tough spots, yeah. put them in a spot where when they have a 10, they don't know if they're supposed to call or not. They're like reluctantly calling or like reluctantly folding. Don't put them in a spot where they just you bomb and they just have an easy fold. Yeah, people make these, I feel like they make this mistake all the time where they, they're so concerned about just winning the pot right there yeah, that they just give up massive amounts mm -hmm. of EV because of it. Yeah, and in most yeah. cases that comes down to, um, it, like that, that manifests itself in betting big in spots where you actually should bet smaller or betting flops in spots where you actually should check the flop and force them to play the next street or like, you know, a, a lot of the, actually some, some aspect of it is it'll be, going all in on the flop in a spot where it's much more profitable to play the next street. So like you bet they raise and you just like ship the flop with yeah. a set because you're just <laughs> hoping they call off, mm -hmm. right? But instead you actually should just call and force their bluffs to continue and get more value that way, right? Yeah. So like there's a lot of spots where that happens. Most of the win rate in the tough spot situation is very dependent on like action capped, uncapped, and turn distribution, mm -hmm. right? Where on this specific turn, ace to spades, you go B40, but if the turn was an offsuit ace, that's a different strategy. Or, or if, it, if it turns like a, a, a seven of clubs, then it's like, okay, brick, we're bombing. You know, we're betting really big that. Right. And there's a difference between how you adjust and find the nuance versus just saying, oh, this turn comes, you do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think uh, the ace is a particular magical card. Well, the ace of spades is a particular magical card because it is an over and completes us straight. I think if it's like the nine of spades instead, uh, we may see something like B66 here yeah. or B75 right. instead of uh, 40%. Uh, and that little bit of nuance isn't that particular, right? If you just always chose 40% pot here when the flush card fills, you're still going to do fine because you're going to build your range correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, what I think becomes a little bit more important to identify is, and this is maybe where our audience can kind of uh, kind of relate and chime in a little bit. What are you what are you leaning into building your checking range out of? Because my instinct is that they're probably checking too many good hands. Uh, this turn? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, 
I think that people are generally way too reluctant to, to bet hands without a spade here. Um, and I think that they, they, they don't want to bet them because they don't want to have to fold them. But in fact, there are a lot of hands here which can value bet and then just auto fold to a raise because they just don't have enough equity versus the actual raising range. So yeah. like, it feels like the natural thing to do is just like check back a 10 without a spade. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's actually probably pretty good. It's, right. That's probably fine. But like if you have like ace eight of clubs here, right. it's completely fine to just bet and get value from like 10, nine with right. a spade. Right. But yeah. then if you do get check raise, you just mm -hmm. like annoyingly fold. Yeah. You so know, you're saying you have that, like a weak ace. You're saying that people will fold, will check back. Uh, when they hit the ace too often. Right, they'll check yep. back because they right. don't want to get raised. Right. When in fact, mm -hmm. betting to get value and then folding when yeah. you get raised is fine, especially mm -hmm. if you know your opponent's just not bluffing enough when mm -hmm. they raise. Like, so it's like, know. oh, I, I see bet this flop with like ace jack, mm -hmm. uh, no spade, and now I hit my ace and now they check to me like, well, now I just want to get the show down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of thing where you're just but leaving in, a lot of value right. on the table. But in, yeah, exactly. In reality, you can mm -hmm. get at least one more street of value here. Possibly if the river comes a seven of clubs and you yeah. have ace jack of diamonds, maybe you can even get a third street sometimes. You right. know? Yeah. Like, it I, does happen. I think a lot of hands that uh, really mess up here are like jacks through kings. Right. And not recognizing that... Um, you could still bet these pretty comfortably for value and uh that ironically you probably are happier to bet without a spade than with yeah because you have very easy decisions if you get raised it's a very comfortable fold if you don't get raised it's a very comfortable check down mm -hmm. yeah. right? there's very few aces in your opponent's range as well at this at this point there's a few but there's a few like, but there's a few will draws and stuff like that but, right? but, but even but, like ace three is going to have a tough time raising yeah they don't really raise with, no they're not going to raise right, 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 right so like the with jacks part of the hardest thing about if you have jacks with a spade here is when you do get raised like you're now blocking the jack of spades so yeah you're blocking some flushes but you're also blocking a lot of bluffs so when you do get raised like maybe you're up against some straights sometimes um, you're definitely in a weird spot with a, right. with a bluff mm -hmm. catcher like that. Whereas with jacks with no spade, you're getting value when you get check called uh, and you're just going to clearly check back the river. But if you get raised, it's an obvious fault, yeah. the trivial fault. Right. Yeah, uh, and I think that the, that's really important to, to recognize because uh, you, you obviously want to have like some king of spade check back, queen of spade check back, jack of spade yeah. back. It's better to do it with the pair, which actually is showdown value. Whereas exactly. I think our audience, I don't want to speak for the audience, but I think there are people out there watching that may have a hand like king queen king of spades and say like oh i don't want to get check raised yeah so i'm like, gonna realize my equity actually you're, you're fine getting check raised with that hand because you're just never folding exactly <laughs> like, that's the that's the yeah. happy bet call and if they check to me on the river fuck them i'm going for yeah, it type right. of hand exactly. you know uh but what you don't want is to have two black kings face that exact same check raise have to peel and then never be good whenever you're facing a bet on the river, but you can't really know. Yeah, and now and then you're like, well, should I turn kings into a bluff? Like, what am I doing here? You know. Mm -hmm. um, but check, you check the turn. You're just like calling most rivers. You know, it's just a nice, easy spot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that these are the very important things to understand. Shout out to Jersey Joe hitting us with the super chat. He said, "Props and thank you, Hunt. It's always much respect. I love Wednesdays." Um, Thanks, yeah, I, I think that you know, with tens here, it's pretty trivial. We're obviously going to be betting, but I think building out that check back range is so critical because you really want to kind of bucket it to mirror the types of hands that you want to bet, right? We know we're not going to check back flushes, at least not many. We might check back like five, four of spades, you know, like uh, even that, like, I don't really think so. But um, 
in order to protect that checkback range, we want to be able to have hands that can improve similar to the hands that we're betting already that are nutted, right? Yeah. So you do want to have some king of spades, queen of spades, jack of spades, and middling spades too, right? Like you're going to see bet eights on the flop. You're very happy to check back eights with a spade on the turn. Yeah, right? and I'm, even for what it's worth with tens on turn, I wouldn't even be surprised if you play some amount of check. You definitely do, but from, in practice, you know. Sure, and like the well, the point being like is, I'm saying would, with set of tens, I yeah. would always, yeah. I would always like bet deuces and threes, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't bet tens as often because we're targeting a ten. Right. In most cases. So right. if we have if we have the cards we're targeting, it's probably more likely that we want right. to check. You want them to have ten with a spade. As we but, do. But, but having pocket tens is kind of the same as having an ace. Right, like you free up the ten, but like when we have tens, we can target the ace. They have a lot of ace high peels, yeah. or they have enough. Sure, you would assume. Yeah. It's just a matter of we still want to protect ourselves on board pair rivers and have boats in that line as well. Mm -hmm. So if I were to pick a combo to check between tens, deuces, and threes, I would pick tens because when we do have deuces, and, like if we have on flop facing for the quarter pot, they're going to check raise a slot with the other sets. Sure. Yeah, I so think like, that's true. If we're if I'm going to choose between okay, I need to protect, um, I would start with tens and then I would go aces and then I would go deuces and threes. Yeah, I mean we, we could choose the bet forty here option. I imagine it's probably gonna be like eighty five percent bet, fifteen percent yeah. check, something like that. That's really not that important. Again, like if you're always betting these hands, not that big of a deal. Yeah, okay, so yeah, eighty percent, wow. not that bad. We're good. Nailed it. <laughs> You just We've come a long way from like five years ago when everyone thought you sucked at poker, huh? I mean, <laughs> I just kept it under wraps, bro. <laughs> uh, but we can, we can talk about this river spot too because uh, even though the, the majority of the strat chat was about building turn ranges and stuff like that, uh, this river is actually interesting enough where I think that we can discuss it um, because it, it further amplifies what happens when the draw completes because mm -hmm. technically now another draw completed, mm -hmm. right? So more hands beat pocket tens at this point however when you look at it from a range vantage point the four doesn't really change anything right uh it weakens our worst value bets on the turn but like now they're pretty happy to check down if you have a hand like ace three ace two you're not going to be betting here again thin for value um and you do get some more thin value bets whenever you bet a hand like pocket fives with a spade right or uh you know something of that sort uh maybe five six well, I guess you don't have five, six off. So you would have just had a flush anyway. It doesn't matter. Uh, stand corrected. But um, you can bet five, six on the turn with no suit. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. think we should. We yeah, should yeah, that's, five, that's fair. Like, you probably, have, yeah, you those have are, some bluffs on four flushes. Yeah, those are reasonable bluffs, right? Yeah, I imagine so. Um, and then also just like our four, five, that was a clear turn value bet, right? We still just have it, right? So now we're talking about this one liner falling on the river. And the discussion shifts to how thinly can we go for value? And then what sizings, right? Well, we have to start with sizings first before we start to fill the bucket. And you can see here that uh, we just always add all in uh, as an option, but it's never going to get chosen. Just in case here, right? you, you don't like that 22x pot. Bro, I fucking love 22x pot. Don't <laughs> get me started. You want to have a range of king of spades like Jack <laughs> and then uh, king six. Don't get me started, okay? I will find the 22x pot jam in, in a bomb pot at some point in the next few months. I promise you that. Got to pull out the 2,000%. However, the 2, <laughs> in theory, in theory, we're not going to choose that option. So you can see that the solver is zoning in on one size. Um, it's going to go for the full pot size here. And there's a particular reason for that, right? Uh, based off of the texture of the board, where a lot of flushes and straights are available, one pair of hands aren't going to be going for value any longer, right? Mm -hmm. So it does become a little bit more polarized in nature, especially now that we've arrived at the river. There's no more equity to be distributed. 
uh, you're pretty much fixed to your hand is ranking here and now you just have to decide whether or not it's a bet. So the question I have for you guys is how do you make that distinction between what is too thin to value bet and what's not? And then secondarily, where or what attribute are you uh, leaning on to pull from your bluffs? I think the it's I think it starts with what region am I targeting, right? I think if if you decide that you're targeting, let's say, maybe the the two pairs here. So like what do I want to make indifferent? <clears throat> yeah, right. And I think whatever you want to make indifferent, you start value betting the stuff that's slightly stronger than that. Mm -hmm. So let's say you decide that your threshold is the two pairs here. You're value betting all your sets plus. Mm -hmm. If you decide that your threshold is the ace with a spade, let's say, mm -hmm. then you might be able to thin value bet some two pairs, but you really don't have a lot of two pairs here. So you know, it's, it's just At least like, not ones that don't block what you're targeting. Yeah, exactly. So like you don't want to bet with stuff that blocks what you're targeting, but if you decide that the the two pairs are your threshold, like you want to make ace four, ace deuce, ace three indifferent, then you basically say the stuff above that category that doesn't block it, like the sets, that's going to be my category for value bets. And then my bluffs are going to be stuff that also doesn't block it. So we don't want to bluff with like something that has an ace. We don't like to randomly turn an ace into a bluff for some right. reason. It's kind of uh, on river <clears throat> a spot where we need to be very particular about what we're betting and the threshold of hands that we're betting. So like we're not really betting very much one pair anymore. We're very scared. I, I would say none. Right. We're very scared. So now when we're betting, we're trying to represent that we have uh, either like a three card, call it set, uh, some two pair, sure, and then a five card hand. Mm -hmm. Right. So now we're, our range is so strong that we are deciding to reopen action with because we do have the ability to check back and realize mm -hmm. we are trying to say that we have a very good hand and half pot doesn't really say very good hand in this instance. Right. 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 So. so I think that that's very important. Uh, along those lines, if we restricted our betting range to only straights or better, do you think the sizing would increase? I think it would have to, but only slightly. Yeah. Because I think that... Like 125? Like 150? Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. We, we would slightly increase it, but we would still... The, the bottom line is if there's still a portion of our value bets that has to worry about running into a flush and getting raised. Right. So, I, that, so that's the game I was trying to play. Right. If then we restricted it to flushes only, do you think the sizing would continue to increase? I think it would, it would, I think it would get bigger, but I think that there would be a certain point where we, we now, I guess, I guess it would be, it, it would be tricky because it, we're, we're talking about things in the inverse, right? Because like, if we increase the sizing, the value bet range is going to change. But normally, we're not deciding on the value betting range before we pick the sizing. So agreed, I, agreed. I think in theory, the if we said we're only betting flushes or or better, I think the sizing would go up. But it's hard to it's hard to know at what point we're like no longer really getting a lot of value, and instead we we want to at least have some possibility that we get raised and things like that. Right? Well, like, yeah, so I'm like, not, I'm not suggesting that it's something we practically do. I'm trying no, to, I just, I just mean like in the solver at like, once you get to like 300, 400%, like now we're, we're going to get to a point where like not even all the flushes can actually get value from that. Oh, great. Right? That was like, going to be my next question. Yeah. Right. So, uh, that, that's just the game that I'm trying to play in order mm -hmm. to build out this heuristic. Like if we then reduced it to, we're only betting a Jack high flush or better, mm -hmm. and then only a queen high flush or better or a King high flush or better. The point that I'm trying to make is that the tighter the range becomes and the more polarized it becomes, the larger the sizing that will generally be, uh, allocated to it right yeah so the big reason why full pot is being utilized here is because we're saying we have a very strong hand like landon was saying of let's call it set or better but 
it is including a bunch of hands that are still losing to uh, hands that our opponent would check, mm -hmm. like straights and flushes. Yeah. yeah. Right? I, so that we're, we're basically capped at pot here whenever we want to select our sizing if we want to be value betting this wide. And it's important to recognize that because what's happening in the wild is that people are value betting way too tight here for the size that should be encompassing a lot more hands. Yeah, they're betting like four bigs here with like a straight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. And that's mm -hmm. where that's where the live uh, pitfall comes from. Something that I think is important as well, um, and I don't know if you can play with this sim specifically in node lock it, but there's a very high, like there's a decent percent chance that out of position has leads on the end. Yeah. Where they're going to be more concentrated to 5x. Sure. Yeah. Right. So the more that they, in theory, will lead their 5x when they check, the more they don't have it. Yeah. Which means you can value bet thinner. Yeah. In practice, if nobody leads a 5, you need to be a lot more careful about the hands you're choosing to bet because of the action that you're going to receive when you face a call. Yeah. That's a really, mm -hmm. uh, that's a really good way to use solvers. In fact, even before the node locking came out on Wizard AI, you could do this. You can run a spot where the out of position player is supposed to have leads and then see what happens when you remove their ability to lead and see how it's going to influence the in-position player strategy because there's big changes that happen there. And it's very relevant to real game play because there's so many spots where people are supposed to have out-of-position donk bets or leads and they don't in practice. Right. So I think that the big takeaway here that we need to understand is that when we want to bet a wider array of equity for value, then we need to uh, pick a size that matches that. The tighter that we get, the 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 more that we need to increase our size in order to match that. Where I was going with the pitfall on live is that your opponents are choosing disincentivized sizings for how tight their range is. And this is a very dangerous pitfall for you as a player in that field to fall into because what ends up happening is then you stop calling enough, right? And this is really critical. It's okay if you recognize that you're against an opponent who never bets worse than a straight here for value but they're only half potting it's okay to still call your sets right now you don't want to always do it because then you're the fish for just you know calling with an inferior hand 100 percent of the time when it's pretty clear <laughs> they're not bluffing mm -hmm. but if they're bluffing at all you're printing yeah. you're just printing because they're choosing a disincentivized size and i get a lot of flack for this uh, i get made fun of a ton in the blajo game that like i just always call i always call i always call and like what they don't bet in third pot on the river right like what they don't understand <laughs> is that they're yeah. choosing a pot like they're betting pot on the end in a situation where their value bet range should probably only be flushes or better mm -hmm. and i'm just like holding a set and it's like thank you like right. thank you so much for choosing a size that's so disincentivized here that I can now call. And when they tap the table and go, you got it, you always fucking call. It's like, well, yeah, because you actually picked a size where I only need you to bluff sometimes. Right. Yeah, this is kind of a big, big deal when it comes to getting over the negative feedback loop that is poker, where sometimes when you have bluff catchers and you realize that your hand is indifferent for a call it pot and a half, but mm -hmm. they go pot, you're actually the one making money. Right where it's very easy to look at that hand, be like, oh man, I never win here, call and then lose and think I'm the idiot versus I actually got a good price here and I'm okay to lose because the game allows for this to be the case. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing that I want everybody to key in on, right? Like think of how many times on the end some whale like joke bet one big blind and you're holding ace high, but you know that he has a hand that he's not folding. So you mm -hmm. can't bluff him, right? Right. And you flick in the big blind and just say like, I got to pay to see it type of thing. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you're not, you're probably not making money there, right? But 
you might be if ever he's fucking around. Yeah. Right? Like, all it takes is, like, 1% of mm-hmm. him to be fucking around. Right. And you're just absolutely printing. That's the extreme example, right? And the reason I use it is because we've all been in that spot where we dusted a big blind just for information's sake, and it's worth it. It's worth every fucking penny. Well, when you start to extrapolate that out to disincentivize sizings, where people are choosing too small of a size with too tight of a range, we now have options that are all very profitable to us. Yeah, when you see certain sizes, or at least when you get to a point of understanding what the theoretical size should be, you can effectively start making diagnostics as to how your opponent plays. Right. And through one hand, you can get thousands of information, like thousands of hands of information. Correct. You realize, oh, okay, like they're betting half pot in a spot, they go pot in half. Okay, that this half pot size is going to be too likely to have value in it. I can start potentially bluff catching less. Right, and maybe bluffing more mm-hmm. if you can figure out what the bottom of their value range is, right? If it's hands where they're just like, oh, I'm going to bet half pot with this uh, because he never raises me. And if he does, it's like a clear, easy fold. Right, like- and now they start making huge errors where they're like betting a straight on the end here on this one liner for half pot instead of like pot plus and then you just raise uh you know pocket sixes with a spade and then they just start like pure folding a five i think this is a difference between looking at the tree and looking at the forest where you look at the tree and you say well damn i lose here versus okay what can i gain from this and most of the time when you see a size that isn't actually correct and you have that information of what is the correct size Mm -hmm. you can actually start to take much more advantage than you really think correct because of the inverse relationship of poker Mm -hmm. where if something happens other things don't happen right right i think that's a really good point um and yeah, I don't think we need to go much deeper into the to the river spot. I just wanted that to be a general takeaway. Time to you, pot it and get raised. Yeah, you can pull it up, Bob. Uh, I think it's a pretty clear value bet for us. Um, kind of scared of... I mean, if you could play with the node lock, I don't know if you can do it in real time, but I wonder how yeah, like can't. the difference between potting and then clicking study and then checking it mm-hmm. versus like how much you actually bet. See, look, you check back a third of the time. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know... What did it call it? I hope it's it has a, a difference. Oh, ace jack, skim. Got him. It's a pretty thin value or a pretty, pretty thin bluff catch. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a good one, right? He's us. calling with an ace, mm-hmm. no diamond. <laughs> what, 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 what is, is going, going on, on here? That? What, you got a little surprise <laughs> for us? <laughs> what, what was that? Don't worry about it. I'm using the countdown music from our last pod. Oh, oh <laughs> but how did you have video attached to it? No, I've always had to do it this way. Yeah. I'm sure there's oh. a much clearer yeah, just, way to do it. He just, uh, he just put it on the screen for a second. Oh. He, he wants to let, listen, Guapo's just sh- giving insight to how he operates to all the people out That's there. news to me right okay, there. Okay, well, he wants to educate you as well. Well, I can. Ha- <laughs> I wish he would have told me sooner. I can help him set up a closing. How, how was Big Bad Guys? I didn't even ask. Oh, it was amazing, dude. Good. Good. Yeah, it was really good. You, you yeah. had your little like Zen retreat. You're all Zen's one mm-hmm. word. Oh, uh, Zen I don't retreat. know if Zen was right. We worked a lot. We did. <laughs> oh, we yeah. were busy. Like literally from the time we got there to the time we left, we were doing something. Yeah. It was like it was very it was, productive. It was fun, busy yep. work. Okay. Right? Yeah, it was. It we was got fun to study. Because we, were, right. we played games. We went out to dinner. I, yeah, we, I read. I read those texts where I guess it, you guys were doing some sort of game where it was like an autocorrect. Thing. Yeah, you let your phone fill it in. Why right. don't you uh, tell why we were doing that, Matt? Well, I don't I don't know why you were doing that, but I read I that in the group chat and I was like I was reading all of this stuff and I was like, what are they all He's saying? Like, You're all stroking out yeah, at the same I was like, time. I, I, yeah, I said are you guys all having a stroke at the same time? Eventually I figured it out. I was like, Oh, they must be doing an autocorrect thing because these sentences don't look like they make sense. Yeah. Like there was stuff that didn't seem grammatically correct and I was like, What is going on here? But it was like a whole wall of text in the group chat of just complete nonsense to me. That was uh that was that was a perfect layup for a segue uh to get us out of here, Matt. Uh we are giving away a WP cruise package this friday uh everybody who's a subscriber and or member 
will be eligible to win as long as you guys are here we're gonna pull a uh we're gonna pull five of you actually from the chat to compete in a little trivia game that we have set up um members will have additional luck you know as a thank you for being a member to uh the software community we're giving away luck well yeah essentially i mean can I have some? <laughs> are you a sub? You, are, are you are you a member to the yeah, YouTube you channel? That, maybe well? not actually. I five bucks. Five bucks. <laughs> okay. Five, five bucks for a little luck. Yeah, okay. that's a steal. Um, but it's a forty five hundred dollar value. These are the uh, the the WPT uh, Voyage or Virgin Voyage cruise. Uh, this is going to be in April. They're going to be running a prime main event as well as some other secondary events. They have ninety tables dedicated to this. So basically, the entire cruise ship. Is going to be dedicated to a WPT event. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, you guys are going to have a chance at that $4,500 value. Show up Friday. I think we're going to be coming live at 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, in the meantime, if you go engage with the uh, Twitter that Matt was referencing, we uh, have a little we have a little uh, fill in the blank with your phone type of challenge on our Twitter. It's a uh, it's a viral thing going on right now. You know, the original one was misogyny check, and it says women are. And then you f let your phone fill in the rest. Uh, we, we did a shit reg check. Let your phone oh, okay. complete the sentence, I hate poker. Oh, that's fun. And go ahead and uh, get yourself in there. Uh, really, the whole reason why we're promoting the tweet is just to remind people that uh, we will be giving away the seat on Friday. But we appreciate all the engagement that you guys give us. So that's going to do it for us today. We're going to be back again tomorrow at noon Pacific. We're starting on time, goddammit. We ran into some issues today uh, getting reset up after we packed everything up and went to Big Bear. But noon tomorrow, I'll believe Thursday, it when I see it. it'll happen. Lock it in. Put it on the board. Book it. <laughs> we're doing it. Uh, noon tomorrow, we're going to be joined by, I believe, Nikki and Melissa again. Uh, either tomorrow or Friday. I'm not sure. I, I don't know what's going on anymore. Where's our EP? Let us know. Uh, but then Friday is going to be the trivia giveaway game. So be sure to tune in for that as well. We'll see you guys all then. Peace. Peace. Bum, 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 bum.